life to set aside uh, a time, a weekend, uh, to focus on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, what it means to follow Him, what demands uh, of it are, what the cost of that discipleship is, and, and also to, to call others in the discipleship of Jesus. to remind us of the beauty of Christ, that, uh, that, that He and the Kingdom uh, are worth having far above anything else. And this weekend has been a time to uh, call students, to call adults, to call, call myself into deeper obedience because of what Christ has done, who He is, to deeper obedience to what He's called us to be in this world. People that are apprentices of this God who set aside all that He was owed to come to earth and that we might have life and, and to remind ourselves of what He said the world is like and what He says is valuable and so that our hearts begin to beat more like His, to love the things that He loves and hate the things that He hates, um, to be more like Jesus. And so that's what this weekend has been, uh, to call ourselves and others, um, to see the beauty of Christ so that they might follow him willingly. We are pursuing something, whether we realize it or not. We are, we're chasing something, and, and the truth is, uh, apart from Christ, what we are pursuing um, is not good for us. It's, it's, the Bible talks about it and says that our pursuits apart from Christ are death. Uh, our pursuit of wealth, our pursuit of prestige, our pursuit of uh, uh, the affection of people for who we are and what we've done, these things are toxic. Um, but it's, it's, it's even in that moment, even when we are pursuing other things, so the rejection uh, of Jesus and then we don't, we don't, we don't want you. Speaking of our life, it's, it's then that He pursues us, right? It's even when we were enemies of Him that Jesus pursued us and that He came after us. Uh, he created us in His strength, but it's in what apparent weakness that He comes in flesh to pursue us and uh, to make us His. And so this weekend is to remind us of that, what He has done so that we pursue Him. Because we only can pursue Him because He first pursued us. We can only love Him because He first loved us. So to have our affections, drawn back to this God who comes and rescues. That's what this weekend is about, and that's what the, the pursuit of Jesus is. Um, it's because He pursued us. Isn't that fantastic? I love it. It's a wonderful story of what God did last weekend in the hearts of the students within our faith family. Over 179 students gathered for worship and deep, intensive Bible study. We had multiple students come to faith in Jesus. We saw eight baptisms, just an incredible movement of God. Church, let us not take for granted what God is doing in our church. 
What a sweet movement of the Holy Spirit of which he is working, not just in our students, but throughout our entire congregation. But I just, I praise God in which we are seeing God move in the hearts of people, particularly in the hearts of teenagers. There are 40,000 Southern Baptist churches in the United States. 20,000 of them will not baptize a single person this year. 20,000. Let's make sure we as a church keep our eyes focused on the gospel in making Christ known in reaching people for Jesus Christ. Beloved, you are loved. The one who made you, the one who gives you life and breath, the one who sustains you and provides for you, the one who protects you and abides with you forever, He loves you. Oftentimes when I was a kid and I heard a preacher tell me God loves you, I would often turn around because I thought he was talking about everyone else except for me. But may I say to you that whatever you bring into this room today, whatever your past, whatever your history, whatever sin, anything hiding in the dark, whatever is hiding in the deep crevices of your heart, I want you to no matter what you bring into this room, God loves you. He loves you so much. And the beauty of the gospel is that even when we feel unworthy, even when we feel like, man, I don't, I don't re- deserve to receive God's love, he loves you anyways. Oh, what beauty that he has provided for us through his son Jesus in which he shows his love for us. And so this morning, as you come in here and you're, you've got a hard heart or you've got shame about something that you've just, you've done and you can't. You can't get over it. Or there's something in your past you're just having a hard time dealing with. God has a word for you today. The Holy Spirit wants to speak directly to you today through his word. I want you to hear me. You are never too far from the ever-extending reach of God's love. And we know this is true because of the cross. You see, the cross of Christ is God officially going on record how much he loves you. The perfect display of God's love is seen in his son, Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's love for sinners like you and me. Men and women, boys and girls from all four corners of the globe. We all live in rebellion against our maker. And yet we can be rescued. We can be saved through the work of Jesus. And you see, motivated by the display of the glory of God and for his love for the whole world, God pursued you in his son. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's surpassing knowledge of his love so that you may be 
filled with the fullness of God. Indeed, Christ loves you, and he gave himself for you as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. He loved you before the foundation of the earth was put in place. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We love God because he first loved us. And because Jesus gave his all for you, Jesus wants all of you. That's his point in Matthew 22. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled, Take It All. As we're starting this new year of 2019, as a church, as a congregation, as a faith family, I want us to be posturing our hearts towards a heart of worship, indeed, in which we are saying, Lord Jesus, you have access to all of my life. There's nothing I'm holding back. Indeed, you are Lord over all. And so I'm asking you, would you take it all? What's interesting, to set the stage for the text this morning, at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus has already had a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He's within seven days of going to the cross. And at this triumphal entry, the people come out and they're having a parade to celebrate his arrival. They're holding up palm branches and waving them in the air and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. Well, the next day, Jesus goes to the temple. There's a big crowd of people, but there's also two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious groups that have very different perspectives about God and the scriptures. Well, as he shows up here in the temple, these elders, these chief priests, these religious leaders, they play their own personal game of stump Jesus. They ask him really good questions, trying to really expose him as a fraud in front of all of the people. But the problem is, if you try to argue with God, you are going to lose. And in a battle of wits, you can never defeat the one who knows all things. So throughout chapter 21, Jesus so humiliated the arrogant religious leaders that they wanted to get rid of him. In fact, in chapter 21, verse 45, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. And although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. So with a crowd of of people gathered around him, Jesus not only outmaneuvers the foolishness of the Pharisees, he uses this as an opportunity to teach the people about the kingdom. And he tells the crowd that some of these Pharisees, they are outside of the kingdom. In fact, chapter 22, verse 13, one day uh, they're gonna be tied up hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This made the Pharisees even more angry. So in their rage, the Pharisees did the unthinkable. They formed an alliance with their own enemies, the Herodians, verse 16. Now the Herodians, these were a people who they supported King Herod, which means they supported Roman taxation. 
which is the exact opposite of the Jews. The Jews despised Roman taxation. So the Pharisees are thinking, let's partner with them and let's give Jesus a question about tax law. And so they do that. They set up a trap, They're trying to set it up where Jesus either is going to make one side happy and the other side mad or vice versa because the question they ask, it's going to deal with both of them. Well, Jesus perceived their malicious intent, verse 18, and he responds with two questions and a statement. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. He nailed it perfectly. His response amazed everyone. Well, as chapter 22 unfolds, it turns into a tag team royal rumble at the temple here. The Pharisees, they tag out, verse 22, and then the Sadducees, they tag in to have their run at Jesus in verse 23. Now, whereas the Pharisees, they were the hyper-conservatives, the Sadducees were the hyper-liberals, this is a group of people, they denied the resurrection, they denied the afterlife, they denied the existence of angels. And so they ask Jesus a question about the resurrection that they don't even believe. But Jesus responds to them in verse 29 and following in a perfect way. It humbles them, it shuts them up so that later on in the text, they tap out and they're like, okay, we're out. We, we tried getting Jesus, but he got us. Then look with me at chapter 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This religious expert in the law, they tried to, he tried to trip up Jesus by asking a very difficult question. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now, the law consisted of 613 commands, so the aim of this lawyer is, if he can get Jesus just to pick one, that he may be able to discredit him because he's now neglecting other important laws. He could consider Jesus a heretic and then make him worthy of condemnation. But Jesus responds by quoting the Shema. That word Shema, it means to hear. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, a very significant passage of scripture for Jews. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. You see, this was such a big deal in Jewish culture because this passage, it was quoted every time Jews would gather for a worship service in a synagogue. While in prayer, a very faithful, pious Jew would wear the Shema on his forehead and on his wrist inside of a leather box called a phylactery. They would continually have this law near their head and near their hands. And at the home of the Shema, at people's homes, the Shema would be posted on their door frames. Faithful Jews, they would quote this verse, this passage of scripture, 
twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, every day of the year. So what was God after in the Shema? You see, God desires a loving, personal relationship with his people. A relationship that requires the whole person, the whole soul, the whole heart, and the whole mind. Indeed, Jesus wants all of you. So let's study the text together this morning. And I want you to see that Jesus's love for you compels you to, number one, love God with all your being. All your being. Verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That word love, it's a verb. It's the kind of love that puts others before yourself. It's the love that you are to have for someone other than yourself, ultimately God, saying, God, you alone have first place in my life. He comes before my family. He comes before my team. He comes before my political party. Indeed, he even comes before my own life. Notice verse 37, that we are to love God with all your hearts. Underline that word all in your Bible. It shows up three times in verse 37. It means whole. It means entire or complete. The love that God is calling for is a love that is never half-hearted, but it's a love with all of who you are. God desires a wholehearted allegiance to himself. That word heart, it refers to the core of one's personal being. It's not a reference to the organ in your body that sends blood all throughout your body, but rather it's the central headquarters of your spiritual life. There's a sense in which we are to love God with every fiber of our being starting at the source. You see, the heart is the place in which that your character rests, your intentions rest, your purpose rests. The heart is the seat of your will. Solomon said it like this in Proverbs 4, verse 23. He says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the wellspring of life. Solomon knew very well that the heart is where everything else flows from. Jesus is calling for a love that comes from the core of your being. There's an old saying, that, uh, a quote that says, all roads lead to Rome. Well, back in the day, Rome had such a dominant presence throughout the entire empire, they had created a road infrastructure and engineering magnificence, quite honestly, that connects the entire world back to the main city. Well, you see, the heart is the capital city of your life. Your heart is where everything else flows from and flows back to. It all starts and ends right here with the heart. You see, in order for you to be rescued by God, it begins by you believing the gospel in your heart. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised, you from the, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, Jesus wants all of you, starting with your heart. 
And once Jesus is Lord over your heart, it is then that he affects every part of your life. We see a great example of this in Mark chapter 12, where we see Jesus and the disciples, they're at the temple and they see all these rich people dropping big sums of money into the temple treasury. But then a poor old widow shows up with two copper coins and she throws it in there and Jesus says she just gave more than everybody else. Because she gave out of the overflow of what she had because she gave everything that she had to live on. You see, this poor old woman gave everything she had. And so Jesus was looking not at the dollar amount. He was looking at the heart. You see, when Jesus has your heart, it is then that he has every part of your life. It's then that you surrender your finances to Jesus. It's then that you say, God, you're the Lord over my time. You're the Lord over all of my resources. You're the one who's given and you're the one who can take away. And so I now come and I give everything to you out of the overflow of my heart. Well, secondly, not only are we to love God with all of your being, but number two, we love God with all of your feeling. All of your feeling. Verse 37, Jesus says, with all of your soul. That word for soul here that Jesus is using, it's a reference to emotions. It's a reference to desires. This is the seat on which your feelings sit. Now see, for these first century Pharisees, they could, write, they could recite the Shema in Hebrew frontwards and backwards, but it didn't mean anything to them. They, they become so part of, of saying this, but it was a thoughtless habit that had no significance from their soul. Beloved, we must be careful that we do not allow a ritual to replace our relationship with God. God is calling you to love him with your emotions. Wives, let me ask you this. What if one day you were just having a terrible day, tough day, really having a hard time making it through, just like, oh, is this day ever going to be over with? And then you hear a knock on the door, and you answer it, and there is your husband holding two dozen red roses. All of a sudden, the bad day turns pretty good. You say, honey, that was so thoughtful. Thank you so much. I love you. This is wonderful. But then your husband responds, no, no. It is my duty. How would you respond? I've got a feeling for some of your husbands, they would be pulling rose thorns out of their ears for a while, okay? You see, God does not want us to divorce our feelings for him in our relationship with him. You see, our emotion, your feelings for God, your love for God should be ever increasing. You can quote scripture. You can be theologically precise. You can have all of your doctrinal ducks in a row. But if your heart, if your love for Jesus is not growing, you have totally missed the point of this command. You see, love for God, it includes emotions. And Jesus is telling us that loving God with your soul is a component of loving God with your emotions. This is part of the greatest law of God here. Like a newlywed who is infatuated and delights in their new spouse, you too are to delight in Jesus. He gives you joy. He overwhelms your emotions. This week, Christy caught me 
looking through an old shoebox of love letters that I had written to her several years ago. And I was looking for a way to drive home this point. And she says, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to think of a way to really communicate to our people how to really feel love. And she said, well, why don't you just use the poem that you wrote me earlier this week? And I thought, okay, not a bad idea. So here goes. Um, Every um, morning, I I make Christy coffee, and I'll write a post-it note on it. Uh, Usually it's a word of encouragement, it's a scripture verse, or it's a poem. And so she said, why don't you read this one? Here it goes. Roses are red, ballet slippers are pink. Sorry I did not have time to clean the kitchen sink. (laughs) I'm going to work hard till into your arms I'll arrive Just do your best to try to keep the kids alive. (laughs) I would marry you every day. No doubt that's the case. I love your smile, admire your character, and adore your beautiful face. You see, part of your love for God, it comes with emotion. Question, are you growing more in love with Jesus? As followers of Jesus, our love for him must be ever increasing. Looking to fall more and more with the one who loved us first and gave his life for us. Does he still delight your heart? You see, Jesus actually gives a warning to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. This is a church that was running well. They were dealing with evildoers in their congregation. They were standing for truth. They were enduring hardship. But in Revelation 2, Jesus said this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Westwood, if we lose our love for Jesus, he will come and take away our light. He will take the lampstand away from us if he is not the one whom we love. Question, are you growing more in love with Jesus? If you are not, then hear the words of Jesus. Repent and return back to the love you had at first. Do you remember the love you had for Christ when you first believed? You just had this overwhelming joy and this increasing love like, oh, I'm amazed. I can't believe this. It feels like a honeymoon where you're like, wow, you have a great zeal, but little knowledge. But that's okay. Well, for many of us, we're growing in Bible knowledge, which is yes, and praise God. And we're going to see that's a part of this great commandment here in just a moment. But may our growth in our knowledge of God never grow greater than our love for God. Always be growing more and more in love with Jesus. But thirdly, Jesus says we're not only to love God with our being and not only with our feeling, but also number three, with all your thinking. Verse 37 Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. You see, to love God with your mind is to think. It is to reason. It is to ponder to the glory of God. You honor Jesus with the thoughts that you choose to think about. 
Now, this means that not only the thoughts that you take captive and you make obedient to Christ, but also by intentionally meditating upon the beauty of his character, the wonder of his nature. You marvel at his essence as God. You walk in nature and you're amazed to see the bee who goes and drinks deeply of the nectar of a flower. You're amazed by the beauty of a sunrise and of a sunset. You delight in seeing how God created the dog to chase its tail. You're amazed as you look at the ground and you see the wind that is blowing the leaves in circles. Lately, I've been going outside at night and just staring up into the sky and seeing just the countless millions of stars twinkling, all put there by God to display his glory. You see, God has given you your mind to love him with, to indeed think upon his word. You see, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ requires that you think biblically. It means the filter through which you view the world is not first through your political party. It's, you don't think first in light of your culture. You don't think first in light of your skin color. You don't think first in light of your favorite team. You think first as a follower of Jesus. To think biblically means every thought that comes through here, you're, you're filtering it through the scriptures. You see, thinking biblically is who we are becoming as a church. We are training ourselves. We are learning how to think as those of people who are of the book. We don't think first as Americans. We think first as Christians. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. And hear me on this. The depth of your love for God is directly connected to your knowledge of God. The better you know him, the more you love him. Just in your relationships, the better you know someone, the more you love them. The same is true with God. The more, the more depth you have in your knowledge of him through his word, the more your love for him grows. So may I, let's close out with this. Number four, you love people with God's love. Verse 39, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love for God leads to a love of neighbor. You cannot rightly love your neighbor if you don't love God first. But if you don't love God, you're not gonna be loving your neighbor. Both of them go together. They hold hands. It's impossible to love God without loving your neighbor. Question, how well are you loving people? If you're finding yourself becoming more and more impatient, if you find your words being more curt, if you're finding yourself having hatred in your heart towards someone who's different than you, then there's a deficiency in your love for God. And Jesus here is connecting that we are to love our neighbor as, our, as we love ourselves. Well, we love ourselves in light of the way that God has loved us in the gospel. Don't miss this. Genuine love of God includes your will, your heart, your head, and your hands. It's all. 
Jesus wants all of you. It's a comprehensive love that encompasses all of who you are. God loves you with his whole being so that you in return might love him with all of your being. It includes your will, your heart, your head, and your hands, which leads us to our impact point, and it's this. I wanna challenge our church this week. I want you to memorize and pray the Shema this week. That passage in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema teaches us that Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of your mind. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your will. He wants all of your relationships and how you connect with other people. Jesus wants all of you. But you know what's interesting? There is only one who has ever loved God perfectly. There is only one who has ever loved his neighbor perfectly, and it's Jesus. He alone is the one who fulfilled Matthew 22 perfectly. You and I, we cannot do this. This is why we need Jesus. We need Christ to come and change our hearts with his love. And as he changes our hearts, we are then compelled to love him with all that we have. Question, what are you holding back from God? Are there things that you're hiding in your heart in which you're saying, God, you cannot have this? Are there things that are lodged in your mind in which you are protecting and you are setting up boundaries and walls saying, no, this belongs to me? Are there relationships in which you're saying, God, you can't have this, this is mine? Well, may I say to you, in light of what God has done for you in the gospel, be amazed by his love for you and would you come to him and say, God, I want you to have all of me. I want you to take all that I am at my heart, my mind, my body, my life, my relationships, my money. Jesus, you take it all. And it is there that you're gonna find freedom. It's there that you find joy. It's there that you find Christ.